some enchanted podcast that I am the host of. Today we are joined by a guy named Bob Martin. He knows lots of stuff and none of its fluff, so don't go away. Please try to stay for Bob Martin and me. All right, thank you for indulging me. I'm Scott Simi, and I promise, for most of this program at least, to never attempt to sing again. Joining me today is Bob Martin. Bob's a writer, he's an actor, he's a comedian, and he's often working on projects that are slated for Broadway in New York. So, Bob, welcome. Oh, hi. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy you're here as well. Listen, maybe we could start with you telling us just a bit more about what you do. And perhaps you might even mention a project or two you've been involved with that listeners might recognize. Well, um, I, I, I'm Canadian. Uh, I was born in England, but raised in Canada. And uh, I, I really made my living making television in Canada. Um, uh, I made a series called Slings and Arrows that uh, had some... Um, infamy, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's still talked about uh, to this day, actually. Um, it was a show about a, um, the goings-on in a, a large not, not-for-profit theater that was based on Stratford. Um, uh, I've, I've done uh, many things in Canadian television, uh, but in the early 2000s, I was involved with a show called The Drowsy Chaperone that ended up, started at the fringe of Toronto and ended up going to Broadway. And um, it had some success on Broadway, won five Tony Awards. And I was suddenly um, relabeled, in a way, uh, as a Broadway book writer, uh, which was an unusual thing for me at the time because it was the first musical I had written. I had been involved in the theater at Second City and, and doing plays in, in Toronto, but I hadn't really been immersed in musical theater. Um, but that's where the work started to come. And, and since then, I've, I've, I've had a total of three shows on Broadway and written, um, well, it was Drowsy Chaperone and Elf and most recently The Prom. Um, and I'm involved in probably the development of seven other shows um, that involve uh, people like Alan Menken, David Yazbek, uh, David Foster, uh, Harry Connick Jr., it's, it's been a really, really wonderful and fulfilling career turn that I did not anticipate. So that's kind of where I am now. I did not know that about The Drowsy Chaperone, that it initially was on Fringe and then wound up getting to Broadway from there. That must have blown your mind, did it? Yes, <laughs> it did. It started even, even more humbly than that. It started as a kind of stag party uh, gift from my friends to to my then wife Janet Vandegraaff and I um and it was performed at the Rivoli in Toronto as a sort of 20 minute half hour kind of fake 1920s musical and we took that material and developed it into the show that ended up on Broadway and in that, and you know it's it's been all over the world now that show it's been in Tokyo it's been in Australia it's been all over the world still performed every every day somewhere although not now because of the pandemic <laughs> Well, we're certainly going to get to the, the state of the stage in, in a moment, but um, I 
looked up your bio on Wikipedia and I was kind of surprised to see that you, it, at least it didn't appear to show me that you'd been involved with theater until you were in your 30s and getting involved with Second City. Is, is that correct? Were you sort of late to the game? I'm, I'm late to the game in everything in my life, so that's probably accurate. I can't, I, I kind of, all the dates have blurred together in my mind. I mean, I studied theater uh, at the University of Toronto, um, but I, I, start, I went right into sort of television writing. Um, uh, th- theater was in parallel to that, but TV was how I was earning my living. I was also acting. I was doing a lot of acting, and that's how I paid for university and everything. Um, but, but then second city was kind of a big, uh, change for me. And yeah, that would have been in my late twenties, early thirties. Um, Hmm. and that kind of, that's when I really fell in love with performing, um, and, and improvisation and comedy. Um, and that, yeah, that was a big sort of life changing event as well. Oh, that's awesome. Now you, you divide your time between Canada and the U S and particularly New York city. So where were you when things began to lock down and what was that like for you? Um, I think I was, when things started to get bad, I was actually in Cleveland because I was uh, attending an event to announce uh, the inclusion of the prom in, um, uh, in, in the season at a, at a theater in Cleveland. Um, and we started to hear, you know, terrible news stories about how this virus was spreading, you know, because it began only as a single case, I believe, in January. And then uh, um, by, I guess, early March, it, it became a dangerous thing. I, I returned to New York City, turned out to be the last flight I would take <laughs> for quite a while. Um, and uh, I remember that it was the day of the opening of six on Broadway. And I was supposed to go to that opening and hours before um, the opening was canceled. And that was highly unusual. I've never heard of that happening before on Broadway. And we realized that this was going to be a sort of a cascading event and that all the theaters were going to close and that the industry would then shut down. Um, So that's, that's sort of my memory of it. It was deciding whether or not to go to the six opening and um, and and then finding out that it had closed. There was also um, we we found out that several people in the cast of Moulin Rouge on Broadway had tested positive for COVID, um, and that was making everybody very nervous. I think it was that 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 actually led to the close to the cancellation of Six, and then the closing of all Broadway theaters. Now the closing of all Broadway theaters is. You know, I, I hate to use the word again, but it's truly unprecedented. What's going through your mind and the minds of performers and other people involved in the industry that you're in contact with when this when this happens? Well, as you say, it was unprecedented, so we didn't really have a way to process this. Um, you have to understand that these these shows, Broadway is unusual. There's only f- about forty theaters, but um, the budgets for these shows are are comparable to the budgets of major Hollywood films. So you, you, you know, a single day uh, of a theater being closed costs a fortune for the people involved. Um, so to have something shut down just before it opened is, is just um, devastating. Uh, so when, again, when this sort of cascade happened, um, we realized that several shows would not survive even a week of being closed. 
Um, and that has proved to be the case. It's, uh, um, uh, it's hard to say how many shows will open again when Broadway finally does open, but, but at least 30, 40% will not. Um, it's just not financially you know, possible for them to remarket their shows and, and, and bring back the same company and everything, um, especially if we have to reopen in a compromised manner. And, and do you think when, when some of those shows close that that's it forever for, for that show and Broadway? I'm just thinking what that might be like if I were the person who wrote that or I was a person who was planning to direct it or I was a person who had a lead role in that, what that would be like. Yeah, it would be uh, no Broadway ever <laughs> in most cases. Um, just because of the complex financing and scheduling and availability of Broadway theaters. It's, it's, it's kind of like landing on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> you know, you have a limited number of opportunities. Uh, sometimes you have to wait years before a theater becomes available. So, so when it's completely disrupted like this, um, it can sink a project. You know, the other thing is, and this has been the major point of discussion for everyone in the community is what will people want to see once we come out of this? I mean, the zeitgeist changed dramatically in the moment the pandemic hit. <laughs> so we're trying to anticipate what people want um, once we get out of this terrible situation. <laughs> you know, because I don't work in Broadway, I, I don't know a whole lot about it. So I started trying to just drill down and, and find some numbers about it. And I could not believe how big a deal it is in term, as a business. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of stats, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but there are nearly 15 million seats every year uh, that are sold for Broadway productions, uh, that Broadway brings in more people than all of New York and New Jersey's 10 professional sports teams combined, contributing nearly 15 billion, that's with a B, to New York City's economy annually and something like 100,000 direct jobs. So this is a really big deal when this gets just ripped out of the heart of a city, is it not? Yes, exactly, yeah. Because Broadway isn't just a, a performance at 8 p.m. It's also a family coming into town, staying at a hotel, having dinner, paying for parking, going to see the Empire State Building and, and all of this. It is a, a huge influx of uh, money into the economy. So that's all gone. And restaurants will close as a result. We all know restaurants that have closed. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know about travel and tourism that was hit just as hard as uh, the theater was, I believe. So yeah, it's, it's really, really devastating. Now, unfortunately, you know, Broadway is is a type of industry that relies on people in close proximity to one another um, in the same way that, that sporting events do. But with sporting events, as we've seen now, they're attempting to relaunch these with sound effects and, you know, empty stadiums. But that isn't really something we can do with a, with a Broadway production, is it? I don't see how it's possible. <laughs> I mean... We, there's, there's, again, the financial concerns. So if you're talking about social distance, distancing in a theater, then you're talking about a theater that's probably at a third of its capacity, uh, which would normally close a show, that alone. Um, the thing I'm most worried about is uh, uh, the musicians in the pit. There's just no way to get any distance between musicians in a pit. And people are blowing into instruments. I mean, it's just a very, it's a little cesspool in, at the best of times. And then, and then 
theaters are not huge, luxurious spaces. The, the wings are very crowded. You have a lot of craftspeople uh, and close intimate contact between um, the craftspeople and the actors themselves. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine how it can open normally. Um, I, 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 I think of this whole problem as sort of two phases. It's, it's, it, think of, the, of COVID as a natural disaster where a city's sort of interest, infrastructure is destroyed. How can you sort of get back to some kind of compromised morale boosting situation? <laughs> That's phase one, right? So, um, uh, you know, something in, with, with a third of an audience and, and, you know, the performers wearing plastic visors or some, some horrible thing. And I have seen photographs of productions where the actors are doing that. Um, you know, sure, that's something that's kind of a token to say we will be back in full force at some time in the future. <laughs> um, uh, but then the real return is um, when we are, well, when I say we, I mean the United States really is is in a situation like New Zealand is in, where it's completely um, managed uh, the virus. And there's a, there's a, a vaccine that's a, widely available and cheaply available. Um, and life is just safe again. What, what is interesting to me is, that, is then what will people want to see? What do creative people who are involved with Broadway do when all of this is shut down? What, what are you doing? I'm doing a lot of Zoom. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a lot. Of, we're, you know, we're, we're planning out our shows and keeping them alive as much as we possibly can. A few, a few of the productions I'm involved in have kind of stopped completely, stopped the development process completely. A few others, um, we were at a stage where we could continue writing and composing. Um, and, uh, and so we're using this sort of free time to really dig deep into the material. Uh, but there's, but the actual work, um, Broadway, of making theater, of being in a room with people, with actors. We can't do any of that. So, you know, as I say, um, incremental development, no money, nobody's earning anything because all the tours are over, though. so all the royalty payments are gone, the salaries are, are not coming in. It's, it's really, really devastating for people in my business. Has the, the government in the United States, uh, either at the state or local or federal levels, uh, stepped up and provided any assistance? Well, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, and, and my situation is unusual because I'm both Canadian and, and, you know, a resident of the States. And just through the grace of God, I happened to have a really good year last year. Um, so I, I, even if there were any... <laughs> anything, any uh, support from the government, I wouldn't qualify for any of it. Um, but I did talk to a bunch of other people I was working with on uh, several different shows. Nobody knows of anything that's coming from the American government to help um, actors. There, there is, uh, uh, cer certain producers are extending um, healthcare coverage and everything for their employees. Um, um, companies like Disney have, have held off furloughing people as long as they possibly can. But ultimately, it's, uh, there's no money coming in. There's no help. And it's something that, that I, I know that the, the producers and uh, other professionals who are in a position of control on Broadway are really quite angry about. Because as you say, we bring in so much money 
and yet we're not we're not we're not helped when uh, things go terribly wrong. I think it's maybe it's considered elitist or something Broadway, but it it really isn't because it's all about restaurant workers and parking lot attendants and all of that. <laughs> As you point out, it's such a, a a massive economic engine, and I guess I also wonder like what happens to an actor who was ready to go on stage and suddenly has no stage upon which to perform. You know, you mentioned some of these organizations like Disney, they're trying to avoid furloughing people, but are other people who were slated to to be in productions, are they simply cut loose and looking for other jobs right now? Well, yes. I mean, I know a lot of people are actually leaving the business because um, when when you can't gather for theater, then you can't work. Um, So they're going back to school or trying to uh, online and trying to, you know, it's, it's sort of a huge step back. I mean, actors are living on the, you know, by a thread in, in the best of circumstances normally. It's really why I became a writer and producer because I couldn't stand the uncertainty of being an actor. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're a young dancer in the chorus of Mean Girls or something and suddenly the theater closes down with no opening date, um, uh, you can't do anything. You can't earn money with your skill set that you worked so hard to develop. And and being a dancer is a limited, um, there's a limited timeline anyway. It's like being a professional athlete. You you have a small window where you can really show what you can do. <laughs> so yeah, for the, for, for these people, it's, it's, um, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Now, COVID-19 has obviously been the biggest thing that's happened to any of us here for, well, about a century. Uh, but we've also seen the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's been reverberating through many sectors as companies and institutions sort of reevaluate uh, how they how they perform and, and their own historic policies. Has there been much discussion of this in the theater world? Yes, it's the it's there's only two things that we're talking about right now. It's Black Lives Matter and COVID-19. <laughs> And, and what, what's the discussion around Black Lives Matter and the theater? Well, it's a, that's a very complex question. I mean, um, basically, people like me, an older, privileged white guy, um, you know, I'm re-examining my prejudices and things that I've consciously or unconsciously done in the past. Um, we're looking at the makeup of our creative teams and, our, uh, and how we cast shows. These were all things we thought about before and talked about quite a bit in the past, but now we're looking at it through a new lens with guidance from, you know, community leaders. Um, things, uh, it, I had a really, really interesting discussion about colorblind casting yesterday with a casting agent in New York. Um, uh, colorblind casting is, is, a, is a term that refers to um, not seeing race while, when casting a show. So for instance, if you did a production of Lear, you could have a white Lear with a black Cordelia or anything like that. Um, uh, there's a movement away from colorblind casting to something called color conscious casting, where you start to take in the, the ramifications for a particular character of being a particular race. Um, and that, that of course is the way we should be writing. That is just good writing. Uh, if you have a black character, you have to understand what it's like for that character to operate in the world. But it's but it's problematic when you're dealing with a, sh- uh, a, a property that already exists, like Lear, or or something that takes place at a period of time when 
people of color would not be present in the room, like something that took place in the 30s or something with, you know, in Hollywood, um, which is, happens to be a show that I'm working on. Uh, so so these, these conversations are extremely um, sensitive and thoughtful and, and, you know, we're looking for guidance, we're attending workshops and, uh, and yeah, we're really reevaluating. Re it's, a, it's, a, it's crazy, it's this second revolution that's happening on top of, of this crisis. But the Black Lives Matter inspired revolution is, is a very healthy one and long time coming. So I think it's I think we're all going to be in a better place eventually. We it's it's coming it's so much of this is coming down to semantics. We have to understand that we have to define the terms and understand the language that we use going forward. We've seen theater tackle some really difficult uh events before and turn them into works of of hope and even inspiration. I'm thinking for example of the the AIDS epidemic that we saw some productions that were you know massively powerful and inspiring. What about this pandemic? Do you think this is going to become source material for future productions? Or do you think people will be so sick of it, as you alluded earlier, that they'll just like, you know what? I don't want to hear anything about COVID-19. It's really hard to say. I, I, I Again, that's why I went back to that uh, book um, by John Barry. Uh, apparently not. Like, I mean, do I want to see the, uh, someone's one-man show about his experience living in New York during the pandemic? No, I do not, because I lived it, <laughs> right? I have no interest in seeing that. I mean, uh, maybe some perspective at some point or maybe a comic take on it. Maybe I would be <laughs> interested in that. I can only really speak for myself. I don't want to say anything about COVID. <laughs> I mean, I would, I guess I would, I, normally as a writer, I, I dig into what is on my mind and what I'm experiencing. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe somebody will come up with the Angels of America version of the COVID pandemic. And, and you know, that would be healing and wonderful. Um, but my instinct is that, that people will want to escape a little bit. At the moment, Broadway is closed until early 2021, I believe. Um, and of course, things could change between now and then. Maybe that could get moved forward, but more likely it might get moved backwards. Any sense on how long it might take? And again, I know I'm asking you to predict here, but how long it might take for Broadway to get back to normal once it finally does reopen? Well, <clears throat> the last um, discussions that I was sort of part of uh, that that was about I, I guess about three weeks ago we were talking about March of next year when certain major shows will open so what that would mean is that we would need to begin rehearsing in January February uh, so people would be have to be able to to be able to gather in a rehearsal space a few months before that opening date um, subsequent to those conversations uh, there's been a, a terrifying, you know, <laughs> surge in the number of cases in the United States. Um, so I, I would not be surprised if that date were pushed. Because, yeah, because what people have to remember is that it's not really about March. It's about January. When this podcast first began, uh, we were kind of at the height of the initial spread of the pandemic, and there was no way I was going to go to a store and buy a bell. So I got myself a little drinking glass, and <laughs> that sound 
indicates that we are heading into the rapid fire round section. Oh, no. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, so I'm going to ask you maybe four or five really quick questions. I'm just looking for quick answers. First thing off the top of your head. Are you ready? Is that a question? Yes. That is a question. Excellent. Number one, what's your favorite Broadway production? Um, <laughs> that I didn't write? Yes. Uh, um, I, I really enjoyed Band's Visit. And that you wrote? Uh, well, I, I have special affection for Drowsy Chaperone, obviously, but The Prom has been uh, um, a really wonderful experience in my life. What do you like best about New York City? I would say the coffee shops. I write in coffee shops. <laughs> hot, hot dog, hamburger, or something vegetarian? Um, something vegetarian. I'm what old. Show... I have to be careful. <laughs> what show or movie really makes you laugh? <laughs> there are certain uh, Woody Allen films that I still have great affection for, although it's <laughs> become harder and harder to defend even his early work. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but yes. And what are you really looking forward to doing that you can't do right now? Walking in the Upper West Side. Uh, yes, that's, that's down uh, Riverside Park. Um, that's what I, I love to do. And, uh, I would love to do that and look up and not see people wearing masks. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Martin, thanks so much. This is a great conversation. I appreciate you sharing your inside story today. Thank you. I'm going to wash that show right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that show right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that show right out of my hair. Hey, wait a sec, I'm bald. Thanks for tuning in again. I'm Scott Simme, and this has been Inside Stories. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Music